Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. Weeks before I found out that it was an after-dinner talk, I entitled my presentation, Once for All, Eucharistic Mystagogy and the Trinity. (laughs) For the last five days, I've been rethinking that title (laughs) and shaving off vast portions of a keynote address that just wouldn't work after dinner. But I want to really do what Petrarch was just doing, and that is I want to make this presentation something of a thank offering. You can read about that in Leviticus 7, a todah, because it really is an occasion for me to express my gratitude, not only to Petrock for what he's done in organizing the Catechetical Institute and this event, but also to Sister Johanna. It is so nice to have a patriarch and a matriarch. She has been the heart of this for so long, and I have mostly stood by and watched in amazement and awe at all of the things that she has done with mostly my former students, who are now my colleagues. And I stand in awe of James Pauley, of Bob Rice, of Amy Roberts, of Eric Westby, Ron Bolster, Scott Solemn, and now Bill Keimig, who's director also of the Catechetical Institute with Petrock, and I feel like I am the last and the least of the catechists, certainly not the incarnation. (laughs) But what a privilege it is for me to be here with this team. But I also want to extend uh, my thanks to all of you who are missionary disciples, lay apostles, doing the work of the Lord in a vineyard where it's hard to grow things given this toxic culture. How many of you were there in Florida for the convocation? I knew a number of you would be there. I had to miss it, but I understand that the bishops and all of the people there came away with sort of a consensus that what we need to do is form Catholics to be missionary disciples. I spoke to Petrock shortly after he got back, and he was explaining to me his perspective, and I hope you don't mind if I share it, because he felt that the accent mark was falling upon the term missionary, which is fine. But I think we both share the sense that what we really need to do is to shift the accent ever so subtly to missionary disciples. Because discipleship and following Jesus is really where we need to begin and end. Just like you have to inhale before you exhale. You have to draw in the breath of God's spirit in order to share. Otherwise, you can end up intellectualizing and professionalizing a work that is really not only sacred, but also divine for which we need God's help. We look around our culture, and it's just getting worse and worse. I'm reminded of this quote from Mark Twain, everyone complains about the weather, but no one does anything about it. (laughs) That's because you can't. (laughs) And I think generating complaints and accusations has become something of a growth industry among Catholics these days. But I stand in awe of a catechetical team that really focuses not on all of the bad weather, but upon the joy of the gospel, the joy of the Lord, which has always been our strength, as we know from Nehemiah 8.10. 
This joy, I think, is the key that will unlock the doors of all the hearts that we reach out to, just as it will also unlock our own. And so as I think about the task that is set before us, I'm reminded of a presentation that I heard from someone who's become something of a friend, Pastor Rick Warren from Southern California. He's the pastor at Saddleback, one of the largest megachurches in the country. And we were together on a couple of occasions these last two years. The first time was at the World Meeting of Families in Philadelphia. How many of you were there for that? That was an amazing opportunity. And since I was the token convert, I was asked if I could introduce the token Protestant, the only one who was scheduled to speak. And so about an hour before Pastor Warren got up to speak, I went backstage and met with him. And we just sat down and got to know each other. First, I thanked him for the purpose-driven life, which I was just finished a second reading of, and I just gained so much insight from that. And then he proceeded to thank me for the Lamb's Supper, for Hail Holy Queen, for Lord have mercy, for joy to the world, and my estimation of this man <laughs> kept growing with every title. <laughs> I'm not much, but I'm all I think about. <laughs> In the middle of this amazing presentation, he challenged us as Catholics, 20,000 of us there in Philadelphia. Days before Pope Francis joined us, Pastor Rick Warren identified the new evangelization as the number one mission for the body of Christ. And then he identified John Paul, Benedict, and Francis as the three pioneers who are leading all Christians. And then he also explained why he felt that this was the greatest need for the body of Christ in the world at this time. And this is where he sounded a little bit like those who complain about the weather. But he did it in such an inimitable way, I texted him afterwards and he gave me permission to plagiarize. So he said to us, in today's society, materialism is idolized, immorality is glamorized, truth is minimized while sin is normalized. Divorce is rationalized, abortion is legalized, the courts are paralyzed, and politics are polarized. In TV and movies, crime is legitimized, drug use is minimized, comedy is vulgarized, while sex is trivialized. The Bible is fictionalized, churches are satirized, God is marginalized, while Christians are demonized. The elderly are dehumanized, the sick are euthanized, the poor are victimized, and our children are tranquilized. And he went on. In our families, our manners have become uncivilized, our speech vulgarized, our faith is secularized so that everything is commercialized. And then it concluded, unfortunately, you and I, Christians, as brothers in Christ and sisters, we find ourselves disorganized, our pastors are demoralized, our faith is compartmentalized, Christians throughout the world are brutalized, and so our witness is compromised. What do we need? We need our worship to be revitalized, our differences to be minimized, our members to be mobilized, and each and every one of us to be re-evangelized. And we just sat there mesmerized. <laughs> it was an amazing litany of woes, but one that really just kind of gave us great hope because the kingdom of God is alive. And we have come to the kingdom for a time such as this. And of course, we have many people besides Pastor Rick Warren to remind us of this. But as we finish up this weekend tomorrow and as we go back to our posts wherever they are, I want to remind you of something that I come back to again and again. 
because so often I work hard. I teach and I write and I travel and I speak and I'm something of a spiritual workaholic and I know it, all right? I go to confession once a week for many years and my kids have never said that I go too frequently. <laughs> That's something we all agree on. But I am convinced that what we need to do is to allow the faith to really come into us anew, to inhale as disciples who follow Jesus and allow ourselves to wake up each morning and to be startled and amazed by a grace that we can sometimes take for granted. I'm reminded of a quote from C.S. Lewis that I find to be somewhat profound but also unsettling. He said, and I quote from God in the Dock, I have found that nothing is more dangerous to one's own faith than the work of an apologist. You can substitute the word catechist. No doctrine of the faith seems to me so spectral, so unreal, as one that I have just successfully defended in a public forum. For a moment, you see, it seems to rest on myself. And as a result, when you go away from that debate, it seems to be no stronger than that weak pillar. And that is why we apologists, and I would say catechists, take our lives in our hands and can be saved only by falling back continually from the web of our own arguments and lessons. As from our intellectual, uh, by falling back continually from the web of our arguments as from our intellectual counters into the reality of Christ himself. From Christian apologetics to Jesus. I find that bracing because I find that to be frequently the case for me. So I'm constantly reminding myself that I am saved by Christ, not by Christology, which I am called upon to teach, which I really enjoy. But at the same time, when we realize, as the Catechism points out in paragraph 170, that our faith does not terminate in doctrinal propositions and formulations, but in the sacred realities, the supernatural mysteries that are communicated by means of those formulations, that does, in a way, subordinate the doctrine. But on the other hand, it doesn't devalue it in any way. Because once we realize that we are saved by Jesus Christ and not Christology, and he's a better best friend than we've ever known, then suddenly we return to that subject matter of Christology. And it's no longer just abstract theory. It's no longer just subject matter. When we're looking at the divinity and the humanity of the God-man, the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, we realize at the heart of this person is a love that this world cannot contain, a love that is stronger than death, but the very thing for which we were all made. And so as you recollect on all of the things that you've heard today and you will hear tomorrow, I really allow it to sink into your heart, not simply for the lesson plans you might have to make for next week, but making yourself and your life the lesson that our Lord wants to write on our hearts. Because I am convinced that is what it means to know the joy of the Lord and to communicate it as well. Not one of us in this room will ever be equipped to answer every single question or to resolve all of the common objections that are raised. We'll do our best, but in the end, it really is the joy of the Lord that is our strength. And so I would say that the one thing that other people are going to find more compelling than any proof text, more helpful than any argument, is going to be the face of Christ reflected in the joy that we share because we have come to know ourselves as sinners for whom Christ has died.
not just to forgive. He wouldn't have to die just to forgive us. Not just to be healed. He wouldn't have had to go to the cross for that. But to be regenerated, reborn, adopted, brought into this divine family. I don't know if you've ever wondered, why does it take three divine persons to save one of us humans? It just seems a little excessive, doesn't it? But this is exactly the mystery of faith that we are called upon to share, but also to receive. Because the faith that we share, the salvation we receive, is more than a pardon from a judge in a courtroom, as awesome as that might be. It's also more than a healing prescription we might receive from a divine physician. It really is nothing less than the Father sending the Son to give us the spirit of sonship so that we might cry out, Abba, Father, and know ourselves and see ourselves as God knows and sees us, as beloved sons and daughters. This is a grace that can convert the hardest heart, even mine. And I would say that what we have here is an opportunity to not only share the faith, but also to bring it in and internalize it ourselves. Now, we here at Steubenville are known for the joy of the Lord. We're known for a lot of things. But after 27 years of teaching at a place, you know the strengths and weaknesses. You know where the, the bodies are buried. You know the warts, you know. But you also discover, at least I have after 27 years, I am more in love with this place and grateful for my vocation to teach here than I ever have been in the first quarter of a century. And I believe that God is doing great things here. Part of it, of course, is the renewal that has been going on for more than three decades. It goes way back. And I'm reminded of the late, great Ronald Knox, who spent years, literally decades, working on his, well, his life work, which was a book entitled Enthusiasm, that he continued returning to for decades. He had a negative attitude towards enthusiasm, so he set out to prove, and concludes in part, that nothing of value was ever accomplished by enthusiasm. But then he also admitted, at the end of a lifetime of study, that nothing was ever accomplished without it. So enthusiasm, that passion that we have, the joy of the Lord that we all sense when we set foot on this campus, this is a grace, this is a gift. And it's not something that is secondary, it really is something primary and essential to who we are and what we do. At the same time, it leads us back to Christology, ecclesiology. It leads us back to each and every subject matter of this branch we call sacred theology. And suddenly, instead of devaluing Christology, it gives to us a transvalued appreciation for what it means to study the development of doctrine as the Holy Spirit has providentially guided the church in the face of heresies for more than a millennium. And to recognize that it isn't just a kind of infallible decree that we accept on an authoritarian edict. It really is the Holy Spirit illuminating a mystery that is so deep and so incomprehensible. It makes Christology something that I enjoy teaching, but far more studying. Because I've been here, but I have, I have not frequently admitted that I am primarily a student more than I'm a teacher. I'm a disciple much more than I'm an apostle. And I hope it stays that way because that's what I enjoy the most, sharing what it is I'm learning from our Lord. But I'm also known for teaching scripture, but I'm also con constantly reminded of the fact that the word of God is not a book primarily. The word of God is a person, the second person of this divine family. 
And again, that doesn't devalue sacred scripture. In fact, if anything, it takes the word inspirated, subordinates to the word incarnated, and enables us to get far more out of sacred scripture, especially in the liturgy as we read the Bible from the heart of the church. So I want to encourage you, especially as catechists, to recognize that the catechism is not our primary text. Sacred scripture is. You know, back in the 19th century, when Leo XIII called for a renewal of Thomism, it began to happen through Franzeline and Kloitgen and others. But as Father Aidan Nichols, a very sympathetic Dominican, observed, what they sought to do back in the 1800s was to study Thomas as distinct from studying what Thomas studied, which was sacred scripture, as well as the living tradition. And so as grateful as I am for that renewal, and as Thomistic as I am as well, I am convinced that there is a danger lurking. Nichols points out that back in the 1800s, the Protestants seemed to have cornered the market on scripture. And so it just seemed to be a practical necessity to bypass scripture as primary and to focus instead upon the summa, or magisterial texts. Well, the catechism does not in any way exempt us from studying the Bible. If anything, it enables us to get more out of it. And I want to really encourage you to take that to heart because we have in the word inspired something that in some ways seems too human to be divine, too Hebrew to be profound like the Greeks and the Romans. But it's precisely the humility of God, just like when the word was made flesh and was put in a manger and then on a cross and now on a paten, and now on my tongue. The humility of God will stoop down however low he has to go to our weakness, but at the same time raise us to the heights of divine glory in a way that we ought to long to study more and more in order to teach it with greater effectiveness. But this catechism of ours, which I think is a true treasure, is really a means to an end. The end is conversion to the word of God who is incarnate in Jesus to open ourselves up to the power of the Holy Spirit. But when we're done, we come back to the catechism, not devaluing it, but once again, transvaluing it and loving it more. I remember here on this campus, back in the early 90s, before it was officially published, Bishop Myers, then of Peoria, sent me a draft of the catechism, sub secreto, and he wanted my comments. And so one night, I took it to the Portsuncula. I wanted to spend an hour reading through it. Four and a half hours later, I realized I wasn't going to get much sleep, but I didn't care. I couldn't believe my eyes. I found so many treasures on these pages and these paragraphs that I just prayed that it would get promulgated, and it was. Now, I realize it's called a catechism. So in many institutions of Catholic higher learning, undergraduate and graduate students are encouraged never to quote it. After all, it's a catechism. At the same time, I would say this, that if any of us as professors of theology had published this under any different name, Introduction to Catholic Theology, I would say overnight we would be known as one of the world-class theologians. This is gold in them Nar hills, and we need to discover that again and again. And not just to teach it, but as I said, as missionary disciples to learn it, to study it, to grow into it even more. Now, as I said earlier, the original title of the talk, Once for All, 
Eucharistic mystagogy in the Trinity was my main purpose. I want to return and touch upon that ever so briefly because I feel like it's important. We have a number of ideas that are sort of circulating. I'm thinking especially of Petrarch's presentation this morning that I listened to with gratitude and amazement, and then I took it to prayer. And this emphasis on the pedagogy of God, the pedagogy of God that is his fatherly guidance for all of us as beloved children, for each of us as sons and daughters. But I'm also convinced that we need to kind of cash it out a little bit more because another important theme of the catechism that really unpacks this pedagogy is known in paragraph 236 as the oikonomia, the economy of salvation history, which has nothing to do with Wall Street or the gross national product. It is literally the oikonomia, the household law or plan of God. If pedagogy is God's fatherly guidance, then the economy of salvation is his fatherly plan for the entire human race to form his family, for each and every one of us to discover that Christ's death and resurrection makes us beloved sons and daughters. So this economy represents the story, the plot, the overarching message of the entire Bible. But it's divided up into two parts, the old covenant and the new. And yes, I use that word covenant so you can lift your glasses and <laughs> drink to that. I want you to know how much self-restraint has been exercised <laughs> up until now. We tend to approach the Bible and see the Old Testament as a literary distinction, everything up until Malachi and then everything from Matthew to the Apocalypse. But what we discover in the economy from typology is how the New Testament is concealed in the Old and the Old is revealed and fulfilled in the New, but it's more than a literary technique. It reveals to us that in salvation history, we find the sacred mysteries. This isn't plan B, what we call the New Testament. This is the fulfillment of the plan that God had from before the foundation of the world. But his patience in revealing it to us in terms of typology reveals a fatherly wisdom whereby he does stoop down to us in our weakness. You know, the fathers were terribly fond of this idea of sun katabasis, one of those untranslatable terms from the Greek fathers that we weakly translate what? Accommodation. You know, we hear sun katabasis and we recognize katabasis, which is that divine condescension to our lowliness. But in that word is also the notion of anabasis, that is the divine elevation. So he'll stoop down to us in our misery, but he's intent upon raising us up to his glory. The Old Testament is characterized by Catabasis, stooping down to ancient Israel, unaware of the kingdom of heaven. And then the New Testament is primarily characterized by this anabatic notion of divine elevation, of gratia elevans. And it's one of those things that's got to remain more than a doctrine, more than an abstraction, more than a patristic notion or theological theory, because that's what he's doing for us each and every day. He's stooping down to me in my own self-centeredness, and he's showing me once again that Jesus Christ is the center of this world. He is the Lord of history. He is the only one who gives meaning to my life and to every hour of the day. So we have pedagogy as God's fatherly guidance. We have economy as God's fatherly plan. We have typology as God's fatherly wisdom. But we also have this idea of mystagogy. 
something that was practically lost for generations. Until the last 30 or 40 years, we have retrieved it. We've already heard a little, a little bit about the great uh, bishop mystagogues like Ambrose and Augustine, like St. John Chrysostom and St. Cyril of Jerusalem, and the kind of mystagogical catechesis that not only made the scriptures come alive, but the liturgy also. Enrico Mazza, the master of mystagogy, wrote in his book that what exegesis is to scripture, mystagogy is to the liturgy. That what we do is we move from the visible to the invisible, from the sacraments to the mysteries, from the human actions to the divine realities that are invisibly but profoundly and terribly present. Mystagogy is to the liturgy what exegesis is to scripture. Matza also points out that mystagogy is simply how the Holy Spirit takes typology and applies it to us in the 21st century as much as Christ did in the first century. As the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world, he gave us the memorial of his death and glorious resurrection. And so fulfilled the plan of God, brought the economy to its fulfillment, fulfilled the old by ratifying the new. But what was true back in the first century for Jesus and the disciples, and I'm thinking especially of Clopas and his companion walking along that road to Emmaus, talking to a, a stranger or so they thought, while their hearts were burning hotter and brighter until they finally got to Emmaus and persuaded a stranger to stay. And that's when he did something. He actually did four things. He took, blessed, broke, and gave the same four actions in Luke 24 that you read in Luke 22. But for Clopas and his companion, it wasn't a flashback or a deja vu because they weren't numbered among the 12. They weren't in the upper room. Nevertheless, at precisely the moment that he took, blessed, broke, and gave, their eyes were opened. And just as suddenly Jesus vanished because his physical body, even his resurrected body, was no longer needed. Once our faith reaches the point of conviction that Jesus is present in the breaking of the Eucharistic bread, then if anything, the visible form of his resurrected body could prove to be an impediment or an obstacle to our faith. But finally, they turned to each other and they admitted, did not our hearts burn within us as he opened up the scriptures? And they got up and they walked all the way back to Jerusalem and reported how he was known in the breaking of the bread. This is mystagogy in its primordial form. This becomes the model of the teaching of the scriptures for opening up the invisible realities that are present every time the Eucharist is celebrated, or for that matter, any one of the seven sacraments. I have another word besides the phrases that Enrico Mazza employs, and that is adult ed. <laughs> Mystagogy ought to become the definition of adult education, because adult Catholics are continually going back week after week. Not all of them, in fact, the percentages are dwindling, but still, those who do go to Mass every week so often aren't aware of the mysteries. And not just because of the distractions that I face and you do too, but because of the formation that we haven't received. You know, how many times have I heard people say after the teaching I've given or the teaching they've heard when they came to Franciscan, why didn't I hear that when I was going to Catholic high school? I've been teaching in seminaries now for almost 20 years. And I hear seminarians saying, why has it taken so long for me to hear that? Even priests who come to our conferences, who've been priests for 5, 10, or 20, or 30 years will say, how come I've never heard this before? 
Well, we are here so that that is never said again. The next generation will rise up and say, thank God we heard it and we learned it. And not only by coming to Franciscan, but by just going to a local Catholic school where Franciscan grads and others too are sharing the faith in a life-giving way. This is mystagogy. It shows us that the typological fulfillment of God's plan in the old didn't end on Easter Sunday or at any point in the first century, that it's going to take place tomorrow morning and every other Sunday we live when the scriptures are opened along with our eyes to the breaking of the Eucharistic bread, to the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. We have a doctrine called the real presence. Back in the first century, the word that was used by Jewish Christians speaking and writing Greek for the notion of presence is, does anybody know this from their study of Greek? It's the word parousia. Now, of course, we recognize that word because it's an English term, a kind of Greek loan word, and the fundamentalists have taken it and sort of redefined it because parousia, P-A-R-O-U-S-I-A, basically denotes the second coming, the final advent. But if you look it up in any lexicon, you'll find out that the primary meaning of parousia was not coming or future advent, but simply presence. Like Paul tells the Philippians in chapter 2, as in my presence, so now that I'm gone, in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And the word that he uses for presence is parousia. Now, why do I bring it up? Because we do believe in the second coming. We do believe in a future advent. We know that Christ is coming again to judge the living and the dead. But it's not just going to be on the last day. It's also going to be on the first day of the week, tomorrow morning. When the words of consecration are spoken, what is it we confess? We believe in the real presence of Jesus. As Yaroslav Pelikan points out in volume one of the Christian tradition, in the first, second, and third centuries, he scoured the sources and said, there is no documentary evidence that the church underwent a crisis over the delayed parousia. This was a kind of theological problem that was projected back from the 19th century. He goes on to say that the Eucharist was not compensation for a delayed parousia, but the way the early Christians celebrated the real presence of the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. If we could see the Eucharist through the eyes of our guardian angels, we would see beyond the visible form of the host. We would see nothing less than the Lord of glory, resurrected, ascended, enthroned, lacking nothing in glory, which is why God doesn't allow us to see the real presence of the Lord of glory. We couldn't bear it with our weakened senses. But what we can't see by our eyes, we do see by faith, and we confess that he will come again to judge the living and the dead, and he will come again and again and again to bless us, to feed us, to fill us with the Holy Spirit. We may be in for a surprise on the last day if we are the ones lucky enough to be alive when the veil is pulled back, the curtain is removed, and we get to see the Lord of Lord, Lords in all of his glory. The big surprise will be that he doesn't have any more glory at that point in the end than he has right now in our tabernacles on our altars, upon our tongues, and in our lives. The only glory that is lacking is in us, not him. And so as catechists, we have got to be converts, continually converting to the mystery of faith. Beginning as soon as we hear, let us prepare to celebrate the sacred mysteries, 
How? By confessing our unworthiness and at the same time opening up hearts that are eager to discover a grace that is ever new. I want to leave you with a thought, an old thought. It doesn't go back to the catechism of the Catholic Church. It goes back to the Roman catechism of the 16th century, a.k.a. the catechism of the Council of Trent. In there we read, the mystery of the cross is the most difficult mystery of all, close quote. The mystery of the cross is the most difficult mystery of all, close quote. Now, the reason I read it is because I would have expected the catechism to say that the Blessed Trinity is the most difficult mystery of all. And in terms of its vast, incomprehensible, lofty heights, of course, the Trinity is the highest and the holiest mystery, as we read in paragraph 234. Nevertheless, the mystery of the Word incarnate, dying on the cross, is the greatest difficulty of all. It is not something that people easily understand. It's not something that we hear frequently communicated with clarity. So I want to task you, my brothers and sisters, with this request, that you spend whatever time and energy you have focusing upon a crucifix and asking our Lord to show us how to present the word of the cross, as St. Paul calls it to the Corinthians, which is foolishness to Greeks seeking wisdom, which is obvious weakness to Jews who are seeking signs and found signs from God ever since the 10 signs that led up to the Exodus. But Christ crucified is the wisdom of God and the power of God because that which is weak in God is stronger than human strength. And that which is apparent foolishness to humans is divine wisdom. Most people, I think, understand Jesus' death on the cross as him bearing the brunt of divine wrath for a few hours until the Father got it out of his system. We're celebrating not only the 25th anniversary of the Catechism, but as you know, the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And this was Luther's version of the gospel, that all of our guilt was heaped upon him, and all of his righteousness was heaped upon us, and all of this is alien righteousness, all of this is extrinsic, all of this is, as some called it, a legal fiction. But for those hours, God the Father could look down from heaven and no longer see his beloved son. He could only see our sin. And thus he bore the brunt of all of that anger. This is problematic at so many levels, but it's also practically universal. I have an old book that's been out of print for decades. I brought it back into print through a publisher. It's by Philippe de la Trinité, What is Redemption? Track this down. What is redemption? Read it and then reread it. I think it's the ninth or tenth time I'm reading it. He's pointing out how after the Reformation, this notion of penal substitution came to predominate, not only in almost all Protestant traditions, but also from the lips of the great Bossuet in the Cathedral of Notre Dame and other places too. He quotes page after page of where this view of things was presented by Catholics as well as Protestants back then and it still is today. And I want to propose, at least as a, a line that might lead you, that never did the sacred humanity of God's beloved Son appear to be so lovely and so beautiful as when it hung on the cross. When the Son gave from his human heart full consent to love in his humanity, in the fullness of time, 
as completely as the Trinity does from all eternity. Because he wasn't losing his life on Good Friday. He was giving it. He wasn't the victim of Roman violence. He was the victim of divine love. The only way we can understand the Roman execution in terms of a sacrifice once for all is by looking at Friday in the light of Holy Thursday and seeing the memorial of his death and resurrection. So that in celebrating this Passover, he wasn't just celebrating it one last time. He wasn't just fulfilling the old. He was ratifying the new, saying things that we've heard all of our lives that those disciples never heard before. This is my body which will be given up for you. What was that? And near the end, this is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new covenant. Lift your glasses, you can take a toast. <laughs> the blood of the New Testament poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins do this in memory of me. They had to be sitting there wondering, what is he doing just sort of improvising, embellishing the sacred liturgy of the ancient Passover? Apparently nobody interrupted, but if they had tracked the subsequent events, they would have realized the next day it was more than rhetoric. It was more than just additional ritual. It, there was a reality in those words that became manifested on Good Friday at the cross, where his body was given up, where his blood was poured out, where suddenly we realized what he meant when he said, nobody has the power to take my life. I have the power to lay it down, and I've got the power to take it back. And I dare say if the Roman soldiers had overheard that remark, they would have begged to differ. With all due respect, sir, we have the power and the orders to take your life. But before they laid hands upon him, he laid his hands upon bread and then turned it into something else, a body that incarnated a love that is traceable back to the eternal life of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's precisely what is happening on the cross. It isn't the cancellation of the love of the Father for the Son temporarily. It's the fullest revelation of the love of the Trinity where Jesus is giving up his life as a gift of love as perfectly as the Trinity does. And so as St. Thomas Aquinas says in the Tertia Pars, question 46, this is not penal substitution, this is vicarious satisfaction, where the Son is offering to the Father through our shared humanity a superabundant atonement, giving back to the Father infinitely more than what we have robbed him of through our sins. So this is not only superabundant satisfaction, it is sufficient for our sins and even his executioners, false witnesses, and torturers. This is the mystery of divine love, traceable back to the Trinity. Not plan B, but the only plan from the foundation of the world unfolding in a divine economy. In two acts, the old and the new. But the new is still new even 2,000 years later because through mystagogy we come to realize that he is still giving his life and empowering us he didn't just bear a cross for us, he bestows one upon us. But before he does that, he gives us his own resurrected body. The same body that hung on the cross, that bled and was buried, and then rose again. So when we speak of the heart of the catechism, we're talking about the gospel. But for us, the Catholic gospel is the paschal mystery, the memorial of his death and resurrection. Holy Thursday, united inseparably to Good Friday, and then consummated there on Easter Sunday. Hours and days all recapitulated every time we go to Mass. 
sometimes more than an hour, sometimes barely a half hour. But what we have is eternity entering time. Divine love entering our weak and humble forms. This is why we're on the planet, to inhale the breath of God's Spirit, to consume the Word made flesh, and then to go forth as missionary disciples to share this with everyone we see. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Almighty God, our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of Jesus. And in his holy and powerful name, we ask you now to renew your covenant with us, your children, to release the power of the Holy Spirit more than ever before, to unleash the gifts and the graces of the Spirit that we might be renewed and empowered, not only informed by what we learn, but transformed by your Holy Spirit. We ask you also to give to us a new appreciation of how it is you made us in your image and likeness, not only as male and female, but husband and wife, in a family that reflects the eternal mystery of your Trinity. Help us to apply ourselves not only in theory but practice, to see in your family the church, in our own families as well, something of a, a universal hermeneutic, something of a universal metaphysic that tells us the way things really are because you, the, the Lord God, the Father Almighty, have made all things according to your will. So help us and hear us as we pray that family prayer that Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death, amen. Our Lady of Fatima, Saints Jacinta and Francesco, and St. Callistus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much. Faith and Reason Podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.